haven't lost track of time. Good morning. Happy 4th of July. Are you happy on this 4th of July? You should be. You know, I know that uh, we've seen our share of troubles and hardships and things that we wish were different in the United States of America, but travel abroad and see if we don't live in the greatest place on planet Earth. I, I, I believe that with all my heart. Last time I was in Haiti, I was driving through I was riding in a truck in a, in a vehicle. We're just driving through, and I look around, and I think, Lord, why was I born in America as opposed to here in Haiti? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but I just thank God that um, I get to be here, and I get to be here with you. Now, you may not think you may not want me to be here with you, and that's okay. <laughs> that didn't detract from, from this day. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. If you would, hopefully there's one around you. If not, you may have to have someone hand one to you. Uh, there's a blue card in the foyer, in the foyer, in the pew. When you're gone a week, I mean, things just escape you. There's a blue card in the pew. We'd love to have you fill that out. Drop it in the offering plate on your way out. If you're listening along with us online, you can uh, go to the link in the description below the video and... Scroll down to the bottom of that bulletin and you can fill out a card there. So just want to know that you're hanging out with us and promise not to, to bother you. and ignore, uh, 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 Yeah, we won't bother you. Um, by way of announcement, just a few things. First of all, <clears throat> it says in, in the bulletin that we're going to have our normal schedule tonight. Um, we're actually not going to have our normal schedule tonight. Um, we're actually going to dismiss evening services. So... Uh, you might go ahead and enjoy the 4th with your family. Um, furthermore, uh, there's a monthly business meeting. It'll be next Sunday night, July 11th. And the business meeting agenda is posted on the bulletin board in the foyer. Check that out. If you need to add anything to the agenda, just let me know by Wednesday. Finally, uh, next Sunday, our youth are going to have a fundraiser lunch. They'll have some spaghetti, chicken spaghetti, sides, and desserts. And it will be by donation. Um, so all the donations that you uh, give to the meal will help pay for their summer youth retreat. Uh, and costs related to that. And that's coming up July 26th and 29th. So uh, thank you in advance for uh, making time out of your schedule and supporting our youth by uh, eating spaghetti at their fundraiser. Are there any other announcements we need to make today? Anyone? No? Well, as far as a call to worship this morning, uh, I do want to read to you from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. And it says, Paul's writing to a group of people who <clears throat> have um, been influenced by a group called Judaizers. Uh, they had experienced freedom in Christ, the people to whom Paul's writing, the Galatians. But there was a group of people who were trying to take away some of their freedom. Paul was writing to them to say, this is not how things are supposed to be. So he reminds them of the freedom that they have in Christ. And he says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now the freedom to which Paul refers is not the freedom that we enjoy in our Constitution and Bill of Rights. 
That's not the type of freedom he's talking about. But there's a similarity to the type of freedom he's talking about between Christian freedom, bought and paid for by Christ, something that the people to whom he's writing, also us, we didn't earn. We gain it on behalf or because of the effort of someone else, and we enjoy that freedom. In America, we are free, not because we did anything. We were just born into this wonderful nation. And being born into that freedom is same here in America as it is being reborn into freedom with Christ. We're not, we're not to use that freedom solely for ourselves. Paul says, use it as an, oppor- as an opportunity to, through love, serve one another. In other words, there's a right and a wrong way to use freedom. And as we remember today that we are partakers, recipients of a freedom that's ours by virtue of the sacrifice of others, Jesus Christ and all of those who fought and died to give us freedom. Let's take care of our freedom. As Christians, understand this, we'll never lose our freedom. Praise God. What Christ did, it's done. We'll never lose it. But as as Christian Americans, now, there's a different story. Now, we should work, do our best to proclaim the name of Christ and to work for, for His name and His glory in the public square. And we should do all that we can to protect and preserve freedom. That's, that, you know, there may be a day, and I hope I never see it, that there are freedoms that are taken away from us. But this morning... We celebrate a freedom that can never be taken away. The freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So happy Freedom Day in Christ. Let's stand and sing about our Savior.
Good morning. Today is what? Fourth of July. What else is it called? Independence Day. Independence from who? No, not the Mexicans. <laughs> no, we're still fighting that one. No. Uh, from Britain. Here's, here's what I'm trying to put it in really easy terms. A bunch of people got on a boat and came over here to America. And they lived and they formed 13 groups of people, 13 colonies, and we call them 13 states now. So they're over here, but just like when I go to Kenya, I am still an American citizen, right? Well, these people were still British citizens even though they were living over here. And the British government was over the people who moved over here to the United States. It wasn't even called the United States yet. And so the, the British government was being really unfair to these people, taxing them, putting soldiers in their homes. They didn't they wouldn't give them um, fair trials, a trial by jury. And so the people here in America revolted and they had been fighting a war for a year before they drafted uh, the Declaration of Independence. And they said, we're gonna be independent from Britain. We're gonna come over here and form a country of our own that's independent but they said it's only right if we're going to do that that we declare the reasons why and that's what the declaration of independence is and Thomas Jefferson wrote this in four days if you guys have read the Declaration of Independence, and I try to do that every July the 4th, it is an amazing document. And I only want to read you two sentences out of it this morning, and then I want to tell you something really important. And these are big sentences for little kids, but I'm going to try and make it where you can understand it, okay? It says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So that's what I just said. They, they decided to come up here and declare their independence and they felt like it was right that they stated the reasons why. And so in the Declaration of Independence, they state those reasons. And Thomas Jefferson went on to write, we hold 
these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a very, very important document that Thomas Jefferson wrote in four days. Here's what I want to say to you. We are citizens of the United States, and we declared our independence from an oppressive, that word means they were, they were really um, being unfair to the original people that lived here in the United States. We declared our independence from them. And we can look to the Declaration of Independence and we can see that we stated uh, and fought for our freedom. <coughs> Jefferson said we hold these truths to be self-evident. We are citizens of the kingdom, and we hold these truths to be self-evident. God created the world, and he sent his only son to pay a price that we could not pay for freedom. He paid the price for us. Pastor Shannon quoted Galatians, um, where Paul talks about freedom. And uh, I would encourage you to read the first verse of uh, Galatians that we are truly free. And he, he told the Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so when Jesus Christ went back to heaven and he sent his spirit to live inside of us, that is the only way that we can have lasting freedom. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence in four days. God inspired the writing of his Bible over a period of 1,500 years. He revealed his word to so many different people and had them write it down in our declaration of independence. We are free from sin if Jesus Christ becomes our Savior and puts his spirit in our lives, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you that we live in a country that has earthly freedom. But Father, more than that, we praise you because you loved us so much. You gave us a way to be free from the power of sin free from death. And Father, we love you. We thank you for the life of Jesus Christ, for his death 
and his blood on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
we can be washed in the blood. At the cross of Calvary that we so did not deserve. But because you are an amazing God with amazing love, you came in the form of man and sacrificed yourself so that the blood of Jesus Christ would secure the covenant that would make us right with you. And so, God, we boldly come before you this morning, not because we are righteous in our own selves, but because you say we can in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we come to you this morning and we ask you, we beg of you to change our hearts this morning, God. To depend only upon you for freedom. And that, God, we would be overwhelmed by the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. Do what pleases you. And we confess again, Father, that if you don't show up in this place, we are wasting our time. So do what you want to do. We'll glorify you for it. In the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Amen and amen. Amen. If you would please take your copy of God's word. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you should find a hardback black one somewhere around you in the pew. If you will, turn uh, in that Bible to the back and find page 119. You will be at Romans chapter 1. Uh, from the, on, the outset, I want to say, lest you think that your pastor is ignoring the importance of this holiday and just trudging on with the sermon series... I want to assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. There is more than one appropriate approach to a 4th of July sermon. And I think this morning's text is appropriate for this day and for this time in our country's history. So in short, let me say, and I hope you'll agree with me, that the most pressing issue in America that needs to be addressed is not laws or legislators or anything of the sort. It's lostness. That's why we're in this particular sermon series, Getting Lost. And in talking about getting lost, that doesn't mean that we've lost an ability, to, an ability to discern where we are in the world. We all know that we're in Cherokee, Texas. It's a different kind of lost. It's talking about spiritually being lost. Now this morning, we're going to look at a difficult text. And there's a lot here. won't have time to go through everything, um, but I will press through it as quickly as possible. So if you would please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and this is God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things." Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged 
the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Uh, Again, Lord, we are... I believe here, Lord, we have to just stop uh, and recognize the horror of the wickedness that is here in the text. Um, And for those of us that are Christians, perhaps it's a look back into um, times gone by before we came to Christ where we just lived in total rebellion to you. And maybe that's true of a a person who is a Christian that at this point in their life they're just in total rebellion against you. They're running from you as fast as they can. But Lord, as we look upon our nation, we could, in this text, pick up some particular spiritual hand grenades to pull the pin on and lob at people in our country. Help us to see these things that Paul describes, not as new ways to be disagreeable toward others about their sin, be compassionate toward them, to remind them, to let them know that God has graciously revealed to them their greatest need, their biggest problem. But he hasn't left them without a solution. You sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to be the only sacrifice, the only way that could win freedom from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. Lord, help us to humbly... Let this text speak to us. And Lord, we, as James has already said, unless you move in our midst, we're wasting our time. So Lord, move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, up until this point uh, in our sermon series, Getting Lost, we've talked about where it all started, how it started with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and the serpent, and Eve, and eating of the fruit. Uh, the next week we talked about how it spread Uh, Because Adam's sin, death spread to all men. Because all sinned, Adam was our representative. Um, And then last time I was with you, thanks again, Jared, for preaching in my stead last week. But the week before, um, we talked about how deep it went, how deep the lostness went. We talked about a term, radical moral corruption, and how it described uh, everyone who is apart from Christ, anyone who is in Adam, who is not in Christ, They are uh, radically corrupt morally. And I would go even further and say that we began to actually define, flesh out, what does it mean for a person to be lost? 
And in the last sermon, <clears throat> um, I'm sorry, this morning, in this morning's sermon, we're going to take a deep dive into the ugliness and horror of radical moral depravity. Now, Paul, I believe, and, and again, I'm not going to talk about every word, every phrase that's in this text. That would take way too long. That'd be multiple weeks. But I want to just do kind of a 30,000-foot flyover and say that even though not all of the things that are in this text would apply equally to everyone who is apart from Christ, I think we can say that Paul describes lost people very accurately. He describes them in three ways. First of all, they're unwilling. They are unwilling to know God, to love God, to obey God, to submit to God. They're unwilling to change. They say basically to God, God, I don't want to. Okay? So I want you to think of it like this. <clears throat> uh, if you've ever walked out of, uh, or walked into or walked out of Walmart during Girl Scout cookie time, now those cute little faces say, would you like some cookies? And you know good and well they've got those chocolate peanut butter ones that are just dynamite. You'd love to just eat the whole box for yourself, but you walk on by. You say, no, thank you. I, I just, I don't want any. Now, the next step that Paul talks about is that, that not only are lost people unwilling, but they're unfriendly. Now, so imagine it like this. Okay, so you go into Walmart, and there's those cute little faces trying to get you to buy the cookies. And, and not only do you say, no, I don't want any, you become hostile toward them. Paul talks about hostility. God in this text. May not use those particular terms, but that's how he describes lost people. And then finally, he describes them as unable. Now let me, let me again say, lost people are not prevented from knowing God. Let me say that again. They're not prevented from unknowing God. So it's not like they're unable, unable because they, they're being prevented from doing something. It's the result of choosing to be unwilling and unfriendly. So Paul names specific sins in the text, and not every lost person will be guilty of those sins, but Paul's larger and more general description of lost people applies to all of the unredeemed. Um, we're going to take these three terms and, and quickly move through um, some, some demonstrations in the text of how lost people are unwilling, unfriendly, and unable. First, I want to turn to this, that lost people are unwilling to know God. They're unwilling to know God. And I want you to notice in the text that Paul talks about different types of evidence, two particular pieces of evidence. So it's not that God has hidden himself. God has made himself known so that people are preventing themselves from coming to know him. Now when we say the word know, uh, we should we should Define that a little bit. We, that lost people can know that, that God exists. They can know some of his characteristics, as I'll allude to in a moment. But they can't know him, as in knowing God through Christ in a personal relationship, a, a spiritual walk. Now, Paul in this text presents two types of evidence. And I want to submit that the first one is actually God's wrath. Chapter 5, verse, or check, I'm sorry. Why I put the bullet button anyway? Uh, chapter one, verse eighteen. Paul talks about God's wrath that it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. In other words, people know that that there must be some sort of righteous standard 
established by someone because they are receiving in themselves wrath. In other words, it's a way of saying that God is demonstrating his holy hatred of sin and righteous anger in keeping with his character. He's not flying off the hand, the handle or losing his temper. What he's doing is he's foreshadowing to a lesser degree in the present what the lost will experience fully in the future. And it demonstrates that God is the supreme judge, lawmaker, uh, the lawmaker and the judge of all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But then there's a second piece of evidence in the text, and it's God's world. And it, and it Paul talks about this in verses 19 and 20. I won't take time to read that, but he points to all that has been made and said, this is evidence. In other words, think of it this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that God exists. How do we know? Because of his wrath, people experience judgment for their unrighteousness and also because of what God has created. So these are self-evident truths so all men are without excuse. But also notice in, in, in talking about this, Paul is, is, is declaring God as judge and also God as creator. He's the omnipotent creator of everything that has ever been made in creation. And notice how Paul says um, for, in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived Ever since the creation of the world, there has never been a gap. You can drive between here and, and Bend, and there are going to be places where you don't have cell phone signal. There is never, has never been a time in human history, in the time of creation, where it has not been known that God is the one who created. He has, for all time, given his calling card to people. There's never been a gap. So lost people are unwilling to know God, but they're also unfriendly toward knowing God. They don't want evidence of God. In fact, they suppress the truth. Again, think of the term unfriendly as hostile. Not only do they, want, do they not want to know God, they're hostile toward knowing Him at all. Notice in verse 18. It says that these men, these unredeemed people, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Now, I think of it like this. They want to sin so much. It's as if their conscience no longer works anymore. It's just seared. They no longer know the difference between right and wrong. And in that way, they suppress the truth. Or think about it like this. We live in a place, in a world, where if you don't come along with the leftist agenda, you're going to get shouted down. And this, I think, is what the unredeemed that Paul was talking about, they do. They're trying to shout down God's truth and suppress it. The lost people also deny the truth. Verse 20 says that God has given all sorts of different ways that he exists. And they just deny it. They're without excuse. Lost people are also unfriendly toward knowing God. They ignore the truth. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They just, okay, it sure looks like that there is a supreme being, but we don't want to honor Him. They ignore the truth. Even in verse 28, it says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gives evidence, don't want to acknowledge it, want to ignore it. They also exchange the truth. Verse 25, 
talks about exchanging the truth. Paul says this three different times about exchanging something. Now, you know if you go to the store and you buy something, uh, perhaps you got something at, at Christmas and, and uh, it didn't work. So you got to go back to Walmart and you got to exchange it. So what you're going to do is you're going to take the original uh, thing that you got, you're going to take it to Walmart and you're going to say, this didn't work. And then they're going to say, go get whatever is on the shelf that you needed and we'll exchange this. And it's value for value. It's thing for thing. What's going on here is that people exchanged something that is glorious and awesome for something that, and they substituted substituted it for something less. Verse 25 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Lost people, they don't want to know God. They don't want evidence of God. In fact, they mock the truth. We see this in verses 26 and 27, how in this text, instead of doing what God tells them to do, and it's even according to nature, they say, no, we're going to mock that truth by doing the opposite of what that truth says. Truth, schmooth, is what they say. They also rewrite the truth in verse 32. That all that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. The truth is not that that's wrong. The truth is, is now that's right. In fact, you ought to do that. And if you do that, good for you. So lost people don't want to know God. They're unfriendly toward God. And lastly, they're unable to know God. And the reason that they're unable to know God is because they have fallen minds. Paul attributes or describes this in in a number of different places. First, in verse 31, it says that that they became futile in their thinking. Verse 22, it says they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And verse 28, it says that God gave them up to a debased mind. The reason that lost people are unable to know God is because they have chosen to be unwilling to know God, they are hostile to God, and then in their fallen minds they are unable to know God. Next, we want to turn from knowing to loving. Lost people are unwilling to love God, again, in spite of the evidence. Notice verse 21. They give no glory or gratitude to God. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but instead became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They give where it says they did not honor him. That word literally has the Greek word glory in it. They chose not to give God glory. How do we most glorify God by loving him? They are unwilling to give God any glory, any honor, any gratitude. Lost people are also unfriendly toward loving God. Paul talks about this in a number of places. First of all, in verse 23, they create their own God. It says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We don't want you, God. We will have our own God in our own way. Also in verse 23, and I've already mentioned it, they exchanged the glory of God for idols. Again, not a true exchange. They think it is. That's the problem. They think, well, this God and this God, well, there's no real difference. So they exchanged the glory of God for idols. The most blatant way I think you could say that lost people are unfriendly toward loving God is that they hate God. Look at verse 30. It's, it describes unredeemed people as haters of God. Now, i got to tell you, one time 
I posted online, and I got some, some pushback on this. Have you ever heard of the, uh, the atheist's um, creed? It's there is no God, and I hate it. And so I posted that on Facebook. Man, I got some pushback on that. No, I don't hate God. I'm not talking about love, hate, in, in the way the world describes it. Now, if you turn to the book of 1 John, this is where it's most notable. There's not love and middle ground and hate. There's not love and ambivalence toward God and hate. There's either love or hate. So if you don't love God, guess what? You hate God. Lost people are unable to love God. They have fallen hearts. Notice in verse 21, it talks about God giving them over. Oh, I'm sorry, that, that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they also are unable to love God because they love themselves. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, God, I don't want to love you because I am too busy loving me and what I want. They love themselves and their desires. We turn now to obedience to God. Lost people are unwilling to obey God. They don't want to follow God's commands. Look at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They don't want to do God's commands. Lost people are also unfriendly toward doing, toward obeying God. Again, in verse 32, I won't take time to read it, but you can see in this text that they do what God forbids. But not only do they do what God forbids, they encourage others to do it too. This is great hostility toward God. Lost people are unable to obey God. Now I want to put a scripture on the screen that will illustrate why lost people are unable to obey God. Matthew 7, 16 to 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. See, a healthy tree is physically unable to produce bad fruit. This is Jesus' point. A diseased tree is physically unable to produce good fruit. Now, Jesus' point here is that a tree is unable to produce fruit that is contrary to its nature. This is why lost people cannot obey God. They are unable to. Final area. Lost people are unwilling to change. They don't want to know God. They don't want to love God. They don't want to obey God. And they don't want to change. In spite of God's wrath being revealed, in spite of God's um, calling card in the cosmos, they're unwilling to change. Now it goes deeper than them just ignoring the evidence. It's that they are completely unwilling to change to the point where, and it says three times in the text, God gave them up. Verse 24. 
Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now this word for for give up is the same word that is used when Judas handed Jesus over to the religious leaders when he betrayed him. So God is giving those who persist in their lostness over to what they want. They're unwilling to change. They're unwilling to listen. And so God lets them have their way. Lost people are also unfriendly to change. Notice in verses 26 to 31, they actually, Paul says, it's almost like they ramp it up a notch. They double down on their sinning. Now, I won't take time to to read this. And not everything in this is true about every lost, unredeemed person. But there's such a hostility toward God in general that I'm just going to sin reckless abandon. Lost people are unable to change. Notice what Paul, how Paul describes them after God gives them over. Filled with. Notice in verse 29. It says they were filled with. Verse 29 again. So it says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And then Paul says, they are. Not only are they filled with it, it's who they are. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Unwilling, unfriendly, unable to love God to know God, to obey God, even to change. Now, you might have heard it in my prayer. Um, As we study this text and as we realize that we are God's people in America, we we look at our country and it would be really, really easy to take this and use it as a battering ram against people. Brother Shannon, I'm glad that you decided to preach on this today because now I know what to call those people. But that wasn't the point here. And I hope we realize that. Because the attitude we ought to have toward lost people is not condemnation, but compassion. And then also, to take it one step further, to be reminded of who we were before we met Christ and how even at the way that we act in Christ can be so off-putting to people when we don't walk in accordance with the gospel. Case in point, Paul spends all this time in Romans 18, Romans 1, 18 to 32, talking about, and people... Uh, commentators have thought, well, he's talking about the Gentiles. 
Well, this is a Jewish and Gentile church. So you can imagine, got Jews on this side, got Gentiles on that side. And as soon as Paul starts, you know, there's going to be somebody standing up and reading this. And so the Jews over here, when when they get to that section, Romans 1, 18 to 32, they start doing this right here. Looking over there at those people, those Gentiles, those folks. Of course, that's what they used to be. Then Paul in chapter 2 talks to the Jews. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So as we look at this, we don't want to use this to call names. I hope you understand that. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you're listening online, you've never heard, never received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I want you to understand our, our goal for, for talking about this is not to name call, but to name your biggest and most desperate problem. And my mother-in-law has, has cancer. We didn't know for a long time exactly what we were dealing with. We had to, we had to get news from the one who diagnosed in order to know what it was we were dealing with. In other words, it needed to be named. After it was named, then it was treatable. That's what Paul's doing here. If you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, don't think this Paul is looking down his nose at you, but think of him as a doctor who cares about you and wants you to know what the problem is. Because now that you know the problem, you know that there... You, the next question is, is there treatment? What... what Is there any hope? We sang about it. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. If you want to be free of your sin, you want to be free of the penalty of sin, you want to be taken from being far off from God to being brought into His presence through Christ, it is available through Christ. Perhaps someone might say, Brother Shane, I don't know if that's for me. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God would take the Word of God and apply it to a darkened and foolish mind such that the light would come on and that someone would realize this is not name-calling, this is naming I need treatment and that today you would receive it in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you so much that as we look at this list, this description of sinners, this description of sin, What a wondrous thing that you would consider dying for us. It just boggles the mind that you would love us enough to lay down your life for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, we pray that the Spirit would speak to them, touch their heart, give them new life. 
they've repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Jesus, to be made new this day, that today would be a day of freedom for them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. Let's sing this loud. We've been given freedom from what we talked about in Romans. We've been given freedom through Jesus Christ. So let's sing this together. Oh, how he loves you and me. If you need to make a decision, please come forward at this time. says in 1 John, how great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And we are. And I praise God for that. Um, this morning, just a few prayer announcements. Um, Billy Louise Walker passed away this last week, and I think they had her funeral over the weekend. So pray for that family. Um, I would ask you to pray for a friend of our family, through really through my mother-in-law, and then I worked with this man's wife, Ralph Right, um, friend of, of our family, passed away this last week, so I ask that you pray uh, for them. Um, any other prayer requests we need to make known at this time before we have a word of prayer? Okay. Well, pray for those particular folks. Um, I'm, I'm not going to pray specifically for them. I want to pray, just take some time and pray for our country before we go. Um, so I ask that you join in prayer with me. And then before we leave, we will say the Great Commission together and be dismissed. So let's pray. Our Father, we do count it a privilege to live in, I think, what we all believe to be the greatest country on earth. And we are, we are proud of our country. We're proud of our freedoms. Uh, we're proud of what others sacrifice their lives for us to have. We're, we're proud of those who continue to put their lives on the line to make sure that we uh, continue to have that freedom. They protect it. Father, we recognize that having freedom doesn't mean that everything's always going to go well. Uh, we look at our country and we see things that are very uh, concerning to us. We see a turn uh, away from any, say any, uh, compared to what we've known in the past, it sure seems, Lord, like people are um, 
growing unfriendly toward loving you and serving you and knowing you and changing their lives in conformity with your laws. And in fact, more and more, it looks like they'd rather just double down on their sinning. And it discourages us. But Father, we know um, that we can turn to you and pray for our country, pray for leaders, pray for those with whom we disagree and uh, that you act. And so we willingly and humbly bring all of our concerns to you. I know each one here, as we join together in prayer, they may have different concerns about our country, and I know that you hear them, Lord. But we pray, Lord, that you would, in our day, that we all can see that you would bring revival to our country. We need it so badly. And we know, that, Lord, that if revival comes, it will permeate all areas of um, American life. And so, Father, we pray for that. It, uh, a revival can only happen if you send it. And so, Father, we humbly ask that that this would be the time in which you send revival. Lord, I pray for these people, and as they enjoy this 4th of July celebration today, I pray that you would just bless them, and they'd be grateful for all that they have. Lord, we love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's say the Great Commission together will be dismissed. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are